Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Right. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our uh, online event, uh, Queering Europe, Nationalism and Sexuality, uh, an event that's hosted by the LSE European Institute and the LSE Department of Gender Studies. Um, a big thank you to both of uh, those two departments, the European Institute and the Department of Gender Studies, as well as the LSE events, uh, public events program for hosting all of us tonight. Uh, my name is Jacob Breslow. I'm assistant professor of sexuality and gender at the LSE Department of Gender Studies. And I'm really pleased to be um, chairing this event today uh, and to be welcoming our amazing uh, panel of speakers. And um, before we get to the um, speakers, I have a few housekeeping announcements. Um, for those of you who are joining us on Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Eurocentrism. I think we were going to go for LSE beyond Eurocentrism, but that was slightly too long of a hashtag for Twitter, um, but with that sentiment, uh, of course, in mind. Um, <clears throat> the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, um, subject to no technical uh, difficulties. So tonight, our event is going to consist of presentations from our speakers, followed by some further questions and a public Q&A with the audience. And when we come to the Q&A portion of our event, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Um, questions are going to be sent to me. I'll read through them and then um, present them to our speakers. So um, uh, let us know your name and your affiliation if you have one when you ask a question. <clears throat> Tonight's event is going to explore the seemingly paradoxical relationship between sexuality and Europeanness. Challenging the binary of tolerant West and intolerant others, the event will discuss how both homophobia and homonationalism are intertwined with nationalist projects across the continent. It's now been about 20 years since Poire and Rye's Monster Terrorist Fag was published with social text, 14 years since, since Terrorist Assemblages was published, and a decade since um, Fatima Altayeb's European Others was published with Minnesota Press. And while that analysis, that sexuality uh, uh, and so-called progressive sexual politics is connected to uh, necropolitical, Islamophobic, and anti-Arab projects of warfare and Orientalist subjectification, we still see across the continent and on this very campus the mobilization of an institutional voice that works to simultaneously claim itself as progressive through its alleged sexual politics and to threaten to take legal action against students exercising their legal right to protest for holding a rally in support of Palestine, for example, in just the last couple of days. Um, scholars have argued, and perhaps we can discuss this this evening, that these two configurations of contemporary politics, the claim of sexual progressiveness on one hand and the criminalization of acts of solidarity for Palestinians under occupation on the other, actually do go hand in hand. And this conjuncture is part of how the political is structured in our contemporary times. This conjuncture sets the backdrop against which tonight's speakers will be thinking through the convergence of Eurocentrism, nationalism, and sexuality. So with that prompt, uh, let me introduce our speakers uh, in the order that they'll be speaking for you tonight. Our first speaker is Abir Khan, a fellow in gender and culture at the Department of Sociology at LSE and a PhD candidate at the Center for Gender Studies at SOAS. 
Her thesis on the fraught politics of becoming a queer feminist analysis of queer Muslim subjectivation examines the production of the queer Muslim subject in contemporary Britain. She researches and teaches on the subjects of diaspora, empire, race, and queer feminist studies. She's published with Feminist Review, Lambda Nordica, Religion and Gender, and Cole, a journal for body and gender research. Our second speaker is Richard Mull, professor of political sociology at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies um, at UCL. His research focuses on the interrelationship between nationality and sexuality with specific reference uh, to Russia and to Poland. And he's the editor of Soviet and Post-Soviet Sexualities with Rutledge in 2019 and Queer Migration and Asylum in Europe um, with UCL Press in 2021. And that text is available open access on the events page uh, of, this, of this event. So do definitely take a look at that. Our next speaker will be Alyosha Tudor, who's Senior Lecturer in Gender Studies at SOAS University of London. Alyosha's main research interest lies in analyzing knowledge productions on migrations, diasporas, and borders in relation to critiques of Eurocentrism and to processes of gendering and racialization. Alyosha has published widely on these topics with Feminist Review, Feminist Theory, Transgender Studies Quarterly, um, Ethnic and Racial Studies, and Gender, Place, and Culture, among others. At the moment, they're working on a new monograph, a very exciting new project called The Endurance of the Mayor, uh, a monograph on histories of resilience and sexual and state violence in the eastern borderlands of gender and Europe. And our final speaker for tonight uh, is uh, Fatima Al-Taeb, Professor of Ethnicity, Race and Migration and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Yale University. Her research interests include Black Europe, Comparative Diaspora Studies, Queer of Color Critique, Critical Muslim Studies, Decolonial Theory, Transnational Feminisms, Visual Culture Studies, Race and Technology, and Critical European Studies. She is the author of three books uh, and numerous articles on the intersections and interactions of race, gender, sexuality, religion, and nation. And her current project um, explores the intersecting legacies of colonialism, fascism, and socialism in Europe and the potential of queer people of color alliances in decolonizing the continent. So I'm really delighted and thrilled to be um, chairing this event tonight with all of these fantastic speakers. And I'm gonna hand it over to Abira to get us going. Thank you so much, Jacob, uh, for chairing and thank you to, European, to the European Institute um, and the Department of Gender Studies for organizing this event. Um, so in my brief intervention, I want to reflect on the specter of the intolerant Muslim, um, specifically as it is configured in Britain, and do a close reading of this figure and what it reveals about sexuality as a mode of racialized governmentality. So in 2016, a government report investigating integration opportunity in the UK's so-called most isolated and deprived communities released its findings. Led by Dame Louise Casey, the Casey Review's foreword conveys the lukewarm statements of half-hearted government responsibility. Quote, black boys still not getting jobs, white working class kids on free school meals still doing badly in our education system, Muslim girls getting good grades at school but no decent employment opportunities. There, these remain absolutely vital problems to tackle and get right to improve our society, end quote. Setting aside the peculiar fragmentation of Black from working class from Muslim, I am interested in how this attempt at a statement of government responsibility for class, race, gendered marginalization is instantly repudiated by the evocation of the always reliable scapegoat of the faded culture clash. 
In the immediate next sentence, we are reminded by Casey of the internal threats posed by wayward cultures and religions um, to ironclad British values, quote. But I also find other equally worrying things, including high levels of social and economic isolation in some places and cultural and religious practices in communities that are not only holding some of our citizens back, but run contrary to British values and sometimes our laws. Time and time again, I found it was women and children who were the targets of these regressive practices, end quote. Casey goes on to share that she debated the contents of the review, given that it would put some communities, particularly Muslim communities, under the spotlight. But as always, the commitment to the bit prevailed, the bit being the assertion that no, really, Britain does care. I want to focus on this concern expressed for women and children, particularly in the ongoing drama between British values and its internal others. Muslim women and children, and I would also add Muslim queers, are often supporting characters in the long contemporary history of moral panics around Islam and Muslims in Britain. The misogynistic and or homophobic and or regressive, if not violent Muslim man, is symptomatic of the common sense regarding Muslim deviants in the British imaginary. Anxieties about Muslim culture and demography, their lack of integration, their deviation from British norms of the good life, are conveyed through the language of gender and sexuality to appeal to the already established common sense of Muslims as racialized deviants. So if moral panics around British Muslims fixate on the victimhood of marginal Muslim subjectivities, such as Muslim women, children, and queers, by way of their community's so-called regressive practices, then Muslim men are the naturalized perpetrators of this violence. This antagonism enforces racialization by repeatedly scrutinizing and policing the gendered and sexual norms of Muslim subjects. The racialized gendering of Muslim women and children as victims is thus made possible through the perverse masculinities and sexualities of Muslim men. Moral panics around Muslim men in particular range from the frame of domestic violence and coercion, exemplified, for example, through the debates on forced marriages and FGM, to pedophilia and sex trafficking, most notably seen in the Rochdale, Rotherham and Bradford grooming gang scandals, to a backwards homophobia demonstrating the discourses around the no outsiders protests in Birmingham. So this reiteration of the sexual and gender menace posed by the Muslim, Muslim allows for his reification as the embodiment of Muslims' incompatibility with the British public. So if, as Gail Rubin has argued, normative sexuality consolidates normative gender, then deviant sexuality, including the deviant heterosexuality of the Muslim homophobe slash misogynist, threatens the normative gender order. Further, if this, if this deviant sexuality is located within specific cultures, then the threat to the normative gender order becomes embodied by said cultures. We see in these moral panics and in the more liberal rhetoric of the Casey Review, a resonance with Powellian racist discourse regarding the threat of the immigrant. This peril is not simply immediate, but also an issue of pedigree of the immigrant's putative descendants, namely whether or not their families and their children will, will reproduce normative citizenship and British values no matter that the very basis of these norms and values is exclusion. As such, the fixation on incompatibility and integration is not simply an issue regarding the figure of the Muslim homophobe or the repeated repudiation of a backwards Muslim sexuality and culture, but is also an anxiety about social reproduction, particularly whether gendered, sexualized, and racialized Muslim deviants will be dispersed through cultural inheritance. So this antagonism posed by Islam and Muslims in Britain cannot solely be understood under the framework of war on terror securitization regimes and terrorist masculinities. 
Instead, I want to posit that the racialized gendering of Muslims, men, women, children, and queers alike is mediated by Europe and specifically Britain's imperial antagonism towards Islam. So in Black Marxism, Subject Robinson argues that the emergence of European civilization and capitalism has always relied on what he calls racialism as its basis of differentiation. Contra classical Marxism, for Robinson, capitalism is a product of racism and nationalism. He identifies four particular moments that are foundational to European racialism. First, intra-European racialism demonstrated in the racial ordering of the Greek and Roman empires and their delegation of Europeans outside its empire as barbarians. The second moment is the Islamic domination of the Mediterranean, which gave way to the Dark Ages. According to Robinson, and echoed by Edward Said in Orientalism, this period crystallized Europe's hostility towards its idea of Islam. As such, the development of Europe as an epistemological, ideological, and geographic concept, and as an organizing frame for everyday life within it, is inseparable from the emergence of the Islam versus Europe dualism and is notable for, it, for its racial ideological character. So Robinson goes on to argue that the subsequent, subsequent two moments, the third, the incorporation of African, Asian and the peoples of the new world into the world system, um, and fourth, the dialectic of colonialism, plantocratic, plantocratic slavery and the formations of industrial labor, have become naturalized as the starting points for analyses of Western racism. So this neglect of the dialectic of European development and particularly intra-European racialism results in the relegation of European racism to a matter of external contact rather than the foundational logic of Europe and modernity itself. So the repercussions of this negligence of intra-European racism are seen in contemporary European social thought as Fatima Al-Tayeb notes in her book, European Others, whereby both the ideology of race and racialized populations become extraneous to Europe. So Al-Tayeb's analysis re reverberates with Robinson's work on the, um, the amnesia around race slash racialism's foundational role in Europe's self-constitution. So in particular, Al-Tayeb argues that amnesia and racial memory, particularly when it comes to Muslims in Europe, allows for the evasion of the long durée of the racialization of Islam on the continent. As such, clash of civilization discourses gain legitimacy precisely because the problem of race and its concomitant cultural incompatibility are deduced from the looming specter of a fundamental Muslim otherness, rather than a result of Europe simply continuing its extensive internal tradition of racialism. So in Orientalism, Edward Said makes a very simple statement that I think still rings true today. For Europe, Islam was a lasting trauma. So to return to the question of sexuality, I want to ask how might our analysis of British moral panics around Muslim deviance transform if we switch the terms of the debate? What if instead of constantly scrutinizing Europe's internal others, we instead turned our gaze towards Europe's own pathology? What I mean by this is that rather than fixating on sexuality in Europe or even sexuality in Islam within Europe, we instead scrutinize the role of Europe in our understanding of sexuality. To put it differently, how is the emergence and perpetuation of sexuality as a parochial ethnocentric epistemology structured through Europe's and particularly Britain's long contradictory history of positioning an amorphous homogenized Islam as its other? So to return to the Casey review, is rhetorical figuration of the material hardships faced by the Muslim family unit, the Muslim girl and the Muslim community 
perhaps reveals less about some inherent incompatibility of Muslimness with British values, and instead reveals the failure of Britain as a project itself. I think there's something particularly nefarious about how marginal Muslim subjectivities, such as the Muslim women uh, and or the Muslim queer, are worthy of concern solely through the register of domination by their own communities. So in my own work, I am interested in how the interpolation of the queer Muslim in Britain is only ever made possible in dominant ideology through the spectacle of Muslim homophobia. So this call and response structures the conditions of possibility of queer Muslims as recognizable subjects insofar as they can uphold Britain's own imperial hostility towards Islam. As such, how does the constitutive role of Europe and sexuality limit our understanding of the complexities of queer Muslim subject formation? How does it contribute to Europe's project of ontologizing race? So we may learn more about the relationship between the production of the folk devil of the Muslim perpetrator and the production of his presumed queer women and children victims if we switch our gaze towards Europe and more specifically Britain's own pathology. What can an attentiveness to the legacies of coloniality, Powellian racism, Thatcherite neoliberalism, Thatcherite homophobia over a decade of austerity and the ongoing his hostile environment revealed to us about subject formation of the queer Muslim. How does the translation of sexuality in Europe through this limited scope of the sexual subject and its concomitant allegiance to the liberal regimes of rights and representation limit an understanding of the relational vulnerabilities produced and perpetuated by Britain as a project? So I wanna conclude on the, nation of, uh, on the notion of relationality as one possible mode of redress. A relational approach has the capacity to untether the queer Muslim from the grips of cultural domination and homophobia, and instead reposition them as part of a web of interdependent vulnerability and struggle. So when thinking of the Casey Review's reference to the, to the deprivation faced by Black boys, white working class kids, and Muslim girls in Britain, I am reminded of a question posed by Kathy Cohen in Punk's Bull Daggers and Welfare Queens. Who, we might ask, is truly on the outside of heteronormative power? maybe most of us. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Abira, for those amazing and rich provocations and questions. There's a lot that you've already given us as panelists to think through uh, when we turn to the Q&A session. So thank you, thank you. Um, I'm gonna turn over to Professor Richard Moll. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, so today I'd, I'd like to start by talking about uh, how homophobic nationalism is being instrumentalized in uh, contemporary uh, Russian politics uh, and how the perceived westernness of uh, non-normative uh, sexualities and genders is used to legitimize the construction of homosexuality uh, as something that is un-Russian uh, and therefore enables uh, the, the Russian state to uh, marginalize queer Russians. Uh, but then I'd like to move on to discuss um, the, the ways that queer Russians themselves respond to uh, this construction uh, of themselves as being un-Russian uh, and how they sort of engage with, uh, respond to uh, this form of homophobic nationalism and examine whether and to what extent uh, their nationality is, uh, remains uh, part, an important part of their sense of self. And if so, why is that? Uh, if we can move to the next slide, please. Uh, so homophobic nationalism has been a, a key feature of Russian politics for the best part of a decade now. 
Uh, it was the mass protests against the falsification of the results of the 2011 parliamentary elections, which prompted Russia, uh, Putin to reaffirm his political legitimacy by protecting traditional Russian values in the face of alien ideas from the West, such as tolerance or support for LGBT rights. Um, Putin signed the, so, signed the so-called gay propaganda law in June 2013, under the terms of which individuals and organizations would be fined for disseminating information about non-traditional sexual orientations among minors, or for promoting the social equivalence of traditional and non-traditional relationships. For Putin, this law serves uh, multiple purposes. Um, first of all, it helps to shore up support among the conservative majority and is part of his ongoing attempt to clamp down on actual and potential uh, political opponents. As support for LGBT rights is constructed as something specifically Western and a specifically liberal, uh, Russian liberals and Westernizers are tarred with the LGBT brush, even if they do not specifically support LGBT rights themselves, which as far as I can see, none of them do. Uh, the law thus enables Putin to entrench traditional Russian values in the face of the spread of Western liberal ideas, which he blamed for corrupting Russian youth and for fueling opposition to his rule. And tapping into pre-existing antipathy towards homosexuality, he's also able to use the issue of LGBT rights as a lightning rod to divert attention away from political corruption at home. But to ensure that the anti-queer discourse resonates with Russian society, Putin appeals to Russian nationalism and frames the law as part of a strategy to ensure the survival of the Russian nation. The survival of the physical nation would need a marked increase in the Russian birth rate, and to achieve this goal, according to Putin in a television interview, uh, Russia has to cleanse itself of gay people. To reinforce its specifically Russian identity, the nation needs to define itself against its main other, the West, in particular the United States and Western Europe, and reject their liberal values, including support for LGBT rights. Putin's defense of, tra of tradition also chimes with its belief in its national exceptionalism, which can be traced from medieval Moscow's claim to be the third Rome, through the Slavophiles' insistence on Russia's special path, uh, all the way to Lenin's communist messianism. Since the collapse of the USSR, however, Russia has been searching for a special mission and establishing itself as the defender of traditional values against Western decadence can be seen as a way for Russia to fulfill its historical de uh, destiny. While the international outcry against the law was vociferous, Russia could simply provide this Western support um, at, uh, for LGBT rights at the expense of Russian national values as proof that he was right all along. The construction of homosexuality and non as non-traditional and thereby non-Russian, uh, in tandem with Putin's rigorous defense of traditional values as the foundation of Russia's national greatness, successfully legitimized the marginalization of the country's LGBT citizens. And in the five years following the introduction of the law, hate crimes against LGBT people in Russia doubled, with murder accounting for more than 80% of the crimes analyzed. As queer Russians are constructed by Russian politicians, the Russian media and the Russian Orthodox Church as being un-Russian, as a threat to the Russian nation and to Russian values, I was interested to understand how queer Russians themselves responded to these attempts to exclude them from the nation. Was their nationality an important part of their sense of self and if so, why? Why would you want to be a member of a nation that considers you a threat to its very existence? Uh, so to answer, find answers to these questions, I conducted a year of ethnographic research among queer Russian-speaking migrants in Berlin. Uh, 
I chose to focus on queer migrants um, because issues relating to one's sense of nationality and one's relationship with a nation often come into clearer focus in contexts of displacement. And in general, I argue that queer diaspora is a useful heuristic to think about uh, identity, belonging and solidarity among sexual and gender minorities in the context of dispersal and transnational networks. If we could move to the next slide, please. So um, with the exception of one gay man who wanted to assimilate into German culture as quickly as possible, it was apparent from all my other uh, respondents uh, and interview partners that Russianness, particularly with reference to Russian language, culture and mentality, was a central part of the sense of self of all of almost uh, my respondents. Uh, the ability to speak Russian was particularly stressed as something um, very important. Um, but um, part of it was sort of related to sort of communication, the inability to speak German as fluently, uh, but part of it was also about um, sort of sharing cultural norms. Um, as Olga recalled, it didn't matter if you're from Uzbekistan or Russia, you all had the same two TV channels and sang the same songs. And um, so Russian language was a way to sort of create a sense of unity. Um, and, but it was clear that national identity um, sort of played a key, uh, a key role in their sense of self-identification. Um, but it was also clear that uh, Russianness was not understood purely as something uh, as an individual sense of self, but rather something that emerged out of interaction with others. Um, therefore, to sort of engage with um, sort of others uh, in the, the context of migration required engaging with uh, sort of other Russians in Berlin. Um, and certainly the, there's no shortage of Russians in Berlin. There's about 300,000 Russian speakers, um, although they're largely sort of concentrated in uh, uh, Marzan, which is a, a part of uh, the eastern part of the city. But what became clear, um, sorry, if you could move to the next slide, uh, but what became clear was that um, the, uh, the, the existing uh, Russian um, diaspora wasn't perceived as being particularly welcoming uh, to uh, sort of queer people. Uh, and this was sort of largely uh, explained with reference to the sort of the rigid boundary maintenance, the fact that a lot of the, the Russians in Berlin uh, sort of remained um, sort, of, uh, sort of interacted almost exclusively with other, uh, other Russian speakers. Um, therefore, the the um, the, the desire to sort of engage, to uh, speak Russian, to sort of share cultural practices uh, with other Russians uh, was considered um, uh, sort of more difficult uh, if one sort of spoke of the, the, the general diasporic population. Uh, and also the, the sort of some of the diasporic, diasporic institutions um, presented a very sort of traditional uh, sort of understanding of, of what it meant to be Russian. Um, if we could move to the next slide, please. Um, so it was in sort of recognition that sort of being a migrant and LGBT could result in a sense of double discrimination that led to the uh, creation of a uh, of Kvartira, uh, an association of LGBT Russian speakers and their friends. Uh, the aim of um, Kvartira is to uh, sort of offer um, psychological support to provide a space uh, to express your sort of language and your uh, culture, your sexuality, your nationality uh, in a safe space, and but also to sort of demonstrate loyalty and solidarity uh, with queers uh, in Russia. Um, but this sort of raised the question as to why uh, an organization such as this would need to be based on a shared sense of national and not just sexual identity. 
Um, and uh, what became clear from uh, a number of the activists uh, who were um, uh, who uh, comprised a significant number of Kvartira uh, was that uh, if they sort of engaged or sort of worked with German um, sort of organizations and um, saying uh, in support of uh, LGBT rights, uh, it was very often the case that sort of Western and non-Western hierarchies uh, sort of re-emerged uh, in a supposedly sort of ethno-neutral uh, diaspora. Um, so, uh, so having a space um, for specifically uh, sort of Russian uh, language uh, speakers uh, was seen as particularly beneficial for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it, uh, as I said, it was a space for uh, LGBT people uh, to express their uh, sort of national identity and their sexuality uh, in the same uh, environment, in the same space. Um, and also it meant that if they were uh, seeking support for certain problems that they were facing, then they didn't need to sort of explain the, the underlying uh, underpinning social and cultural issues uh, that very often sort of fed into these problems. Um, as um, uh, sort of Olga explained, uh, individuals and their families can receive support um, and they will sort of not need to sort of explain to a, a sort of a German organization the, the specific uh, sort of issues relating to attitudes towards gender and sexuality uh, in the context of the, the Russian community. Um, and Kvartira is also very active in, in protesting against uh, the situation for LGBT people in Russia and other post-Soviet states. Um, and to cite uh, sort of Rogers Brubaker, it's this shared sexual and uh, sort of ethno-cultural identity that helps it, uh, that facilitates the ability to make claims, to articulate projects, to mobilize energies and to appeal to loyalties uh, among Russian speaking queers uh, in Berlin. Uh, they sort of engaged in a number of sort of activities, such as the rainbow flash mob, whereby individuals simultaneously released rainbow colored balloons in towns and cities across the world. Um, and this was sort of understood as an act of solidarity uh, with sort of LGBT people uh, in Russia and uh, LGBT Russians uh, in Berlin. Um, so what I found was that sort of the, the Russian queers that I spoke to were able to separate the homophobic uh, nationalism of the Russian state from aspects of Russian national identity, uh, particularly the sort of the linguistic and cultural aspects. Um, and that while they did not adhere to the form of Russian national identity that was being propagated by the Russian state, the Russian media and the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, nevertheless, their sort of queering of um, some key Russian uh, so key aspects of Russian national identity uh, sort of provided uh, a sense of security, uh, a sense of solidarity, um, and um, uh, and sort of enabled them to sort of create queer spaces uh, within the Russian diasporic ethnoscape. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Richard, for sharing your um interview research data with us and for thinking from a queer diasporic space about the ways that we might rethink borders and homophobic nationalisms. That's great. Um, I'm going to hand it over now to Alyosha. Thank you. Thank you um, so much, uh, Jacob, for um, hosting the panel and um, for to the European Institute and the gender, um, the Department for Gender Studies for inviting me. My talk is called, Is it Nazism Yet? Claiming Feminism in Right-Wing Times. 
In this paper, I would like to introduce the term right-wing times to make sense of how feminism and its relationship to sexuality, gender and nation gets mobilized across several European sites. I'm especially interested in the use of the terms Nazism slash fascism, colonialism and socialism slash communism in the debates. One, post-colonialism and post-socialism. Similarly to my reflections on the post and post-colonial Europe, and in line with Atanasoki and Wora, I suggest that the prefix post provides odd contradictory and productive spatial temporal dimensions, not only in relation to the term it is attached to, see Shohat's theoritization of the post and post-colonial, but also in interrelation between, between different terms that are prefixed with the syllabus post. See Apia's question, is the post and postmodernism the post and postcolonial? and various adaptations of the question. Based on Shohat's idea that the prefix post means continuities and ruptures in relation to the term it specifies, and not a simple, simple after, but a non-linear queer temporality that cannot even be fully explained only in temporal dimensions. One could ask too, how the terms which are specified by the prefix post interrelate and how they are put into context to each other through being prefixed in the same way? Is, for example, the socialism in post-socialism, the colonialism in post-colonialism? Certainly, there must be ways to acknowledge that colonialism was and has always been bad, and socialism is at its core what? Good? A theory, in theory, a disruption of colonial slash racial capitalism. Two, communism. In the Black Lives Matter statements that protesters read out in Bucharest on June 7, 2020, they draw connections between police violence against people of color, anti-Roma violence, and power relations like classism, misogyny, queer and transphobia, and discrimination against sex workers, and underline the need for a transnational frame. Even though the in initial moment of the intervention was George Floyd's death and subsequent protests in the US and therefore had nothing to do with the communist past, the trolls on YouTube accused the protesters of communism. One of them going as far as suggesting they should die like Ceausescu died, um, also known as being shot by the Romanian military. While, while the post-colonial moment of the radically intersectional analysis the protesters offer is clear through both the anti-racism of the protest and the racist backlash in the comments, the post-socialist moment is more blurry. We have queer slash trans-feminist, anti-fascist, anti-racist protesters, and we have a Romanian social media public consisting mainly of fascists and racists accusing the protesters of communism. This is very much in line with UK far-right's politicians, Nigel Farage, polemics, that all migrants, I quote, coming from these communist countries um, are uncivilized, end of quote. The idea that due to their communist past, Romanians have not learned how to be a proper member of society. As Christian Churchill puts it, Romania is seen as having no politics, no society. Both rhetorics, the one of the Western anti-East European far right and the one of the Romanian far right are anti-communist, but they ascribe communism to different actors. Western Europe sees all Romanians as tainted by communism. The European East sees itself, itself as having put communism against the wall together with Ceausescu. In this narrative, anti-racist, anti-fascist, queer and trans-feminist activists get equated to that past. 
they have not moved on to the post and post-socialism, which in this grim understanding is the, is the solidification of fascism and far-right regimes. But present-day socialists are not always the ones who oppose racist, misogynist and queer and transphobic nationalism. The recent attempted ban of gender studies in Romania and the predecessor referendum in 2018 that attempted to change the constitution to make gay marriage constitutionally impossible have both been driven by conservatives, the church and far right and backed by the socialists. Aptly, the referendum that failed due to low voter turnout was called Referendum for Romania and advertised with the Romanian national colors. Three. Nazism, fascism. This left-right convergence is a transnational phenomenon as shown, for example, in the US in January 2019, when a group of transphobic feminists held a panel against trans equality and rights under the title Concerns from the Left at an event hosted by the conservative right-wing Heritage Foundation, which has a long history of opposing LGBTQ rights, feminism and immigration. We could ask, what makes left-wing politics left if it's not the commitment to oppose hatred? Is it then only economical questions? Of course, these conjunctures do not come as a surprise, as we know. Socialists backing far-right queer and transphobic legislations and state racism, feminists joining right-wing anti-trans propaganda or gay people reproducing Islamophobic ideas of emancipation, migrants turning against other migrants as the new unwelcome newcomers, etc., to give you an example from the UK context, I would like to discuss how so-called gender critical, uh, how so-called gender criticals maneuver their politics between loudly claiming not being far right while mobilizing far right agendas. Jacob Breslow convincingly demonstrated through a close reading of Maya Fostadter's Employment Tribunal appeal judgment that asserts the protection of a gender critical belief under Section 10 Equality Act that the outcome has been used as a way to intimidate scholars, research teams, and individuals who stand up against gender critical beliefs. The judgment says that the claimant, I quote, beliefs is not comparable to Nazism, end of quote, and is therefore protected. This applies indeed to almost every utterance as the judge explains, pointing out, I quote, the extremely limited circumstances in which a belief would be considered so beyond the pale that it does not qualify for protection at all, end of quote. To be honest, personally, I would want so much more for myself as a feminist than a judgment to attest my not being a Nazi. For example, I would not want my utterances being compared to gross homophobia as seen in paragraph 66 and 116, as also Breslau points out. The first starter judgment didn't say gender critical beliefs are never discrimination. It said most of the abhorrent things people say are not abhorrent enough for them to lose their jobs for saying them and it would need to be determined if discrimination happened in any given case. In theory, this counterclaim to prove transphobic discrimination could be brought, but the question is who carries the risk of not being recognized and seen valid by the law in a discrimination court case. As it happens, Feminist legal scholarship has a long and controversially discussed history, for example, McKinnon, Crenshaw, Cooper, Buckley and Renz and others, of being suspicious of leaving the power of definition, what is and what is not discrimination to the law without always questioning the limits of the law, using Spade's term here. 
With this, gender studies as a field builds on a double focus on struggles for rights and justice and a critical distance from certainties about what these are and who their subject can be, which makes epistemology central for my understanding of the field. All speech acts are performative and do something, even if they don't do what they say they do. Saying I'm not transphobic does not necessarily make you into not a transphobe. And even more, every gendered reading is a misreading. Misgendering a person based on your reading does not make the person into the gender you want them to be. Performativity is not that simple, but makes you, in the best case, into a bad reader, and in the worst case, into a transphobe. And completely unrelated, saying not, I am not a Nazi does not make you into not a Nazi. It kind of depends who your friends are. That was Maya Forstarter doing all this work of writing comments to Jacob's piece, stating the court asserted she's not anywhere near to Nazism. And boom, University of Austin dropped, featuring Forstarter friend Kathleen Stock as faculty alongside an impressive lineup, including a masculinist multimillionaire sponsor, a British empire and Western civilization enthusiast, a white professor who is sulky about being called a racist, and two professors who believe biological difference makes males better at math than females. Wait, is this still not anywhere near to Nazism, or are we getting closer? I want to close with the question what intersectional feminist politics that thrive for social justice and radical social transformation can be in right-wing times. Clearly, in my last example, the judgment used Nazism as the line that cannot be crossed, which, given the fact that we're in the UK, raises the question, why does Nazism, that, that specific form of fascism, and not, for example, colonial genocide, that is the line that cannot be crossed? So yes, of course, transphobia might not be close to Nazism or colonialism, but its biological determinism borrows from far-right and colonial grammar. Right-wing times seem to allow people to attend far-right racist and anti-immigration conferences, calling themselves left, and seem to allow people to close their eyes to the fact that anti-gender has been mobilized by the far-right nationalists and white supremacists across the globe to not, only attract, to not only attack trans people, but also feminists, lesbians, queers, and trans people alike. My question would be, who do you align yourself with in right-wing times? Brilliant. Thank you so much, um, Alyosha, for that exceptionally precise connecting of anti-gender, far-right, and fascist movements, and for that um, exceptionally urgent question around solidarities and, and alliances. I think that that's really important for the conversation that we're having today and um, more widely. Um, I'm now going to hand over to our final speaker of the evening, um, Fatima, and I'll remind everyone who's in the audience that after this, we're going to be opening up to a Q&A session in which you can use the Q&A um, uh, box at the bottom to ask questions of the of the panelists. So start thinking of questions that you might have. Um, but first, Fatima. Thank you very much. Um, I'll use my 10 minutes to make a few pretty broad statements. And I'm going to start out with a 70-year-old quote that probably many of you are familiar with. A civilization that proves incapable of solving the problems it creates is a decadent civilization. A civilization that chooses to close its eyes to its most crucial problems is a stricken civilization. A civilization that uses its principles for trickery and deceit is a dying civilization. 
the fact is that the so-called European civilization, Western civilization, as it has been shaped by two centuries of the part of bourgeois rule, is incapable of solving the two major problems to which its existence has given rise, the problem of the proletariat and the colonial problem. That Europe is unable to justify itself either before the bar of reason or before the bar of conscience, and that increasingly it takes refuge in hypocrisy, which is all the more odious because it is less and less likely to deceive. Europe is indefensible. So that was Emerson there in his discourse on colonialism. And since then, Europe has done little to prove him wrong. On the contrary, the issues Césaire identified escalated in the decades since. Despite the formal end of colonialism, we remain stuck in a state of coloniality, and the fact remains Europe is indefensible. What Europe stands for today is a global order fundamentally built on a binary model that invariably and necessarily first creates a clear division between white Christian Europe and its others, denying the historical reality of intersection, exchange, and commonality, and second, associates Europe with worthiness and defines its others as unworthy, including unworthy of the very right to live, as we can see daily at and increasingly within the continent's border. Europe, not as a material space, not its inhabitants, not its thought conditions, but Europe as a concept needs to be destroyed to achieve decoloniality here and globally. Absent from the concerted rethinking and rewriting of European 20th century history after the end of the Cold War, which combined post-fascist and post-socialist narratives into a Western capitalist success story was a third factor in dire need of reassessment, Europe's colonial leg legacy. The refusal to engage with this past as internal to Europe's history also shapes the continent's vision of its future, manifests in a steadily growing racialized population that remains un-European and in futile attempts to once and for all define and fortify Europe's physical, political and identitarian borders. Borders which are imagined to be self-evident, stable and natural, but which are malleable, shifting and largely imaginary, though very real nonetheless, and which are applied along the fault lines of race. Because of this key role of race in the construction of European identity, it is impossible to integrate racialized communities into the existing model of Europeanness. What is necessary instead is its further destabilization. And I believe that this destabilization is being achieved by the practices of European activists and artists of color who can offer potential answers exactly because of the peculiar position in which continental structures of racialization put communities of color, not quite fitting either dominant models of Europeanness or of racialized groups in settler colonial states. This misfit, this displacement of European communities of color results in their marginalization, which in models of Europe, as well as diaspora, but it also produces radical strategies of resistance, which I've summarized as the queering of ethnicity, which is not only practiced by queer people of color, but is always in line with a non-theological, creolized political strategy, 
working with the tension of the supposed incompatibility of being a European and of color rather than trying to resolve it. And I'm working a lot with the idea of queer people of color. And I'm of course aware that both terms while having their roots and resistant movements have been co-opted to the point that there are reasonable demands for their dismissal as potential tools of transformation. But I still find them powerful when mobilized from the methodological viewpoint of queer of color critique itself, an interdisciplinary approach grounded in activist strategies. And I understand queer of color critique to mean very briefly um, a methodology that resurrects queer as a term of intersectional analysis, not merely synonymous with LGBTQ+, but referencing processes of constructing normative and non-normative behaviors and populations, recognizing that the interactions of race, class, sexuality, and gender creates more complicated groupings and hierarchies between and within communities than simple dichotomies suggest. Building of women of color feminism and its ident identification of culture as a site of resistance for multiply marginalized people, such as women and queers of color. Queer of color critique disrespects borders between theory and practice, activism and art, building glissance, poetics of relation, or in Casey Cohn's terms, a politics where one's relation to power and not some homogenized identity is privileged in determining one's political comrades. In the process, destabilizing naturalized understandings of time and space that work in the interests of particular groups, recovering impossible alternatives, in short, to rip off order lord, it is the way we help to give name to the nameless so it can be thought. But of course, more than 30 years after Lord's poetry is not a luxury, queers of color remain the nameless in most movements and communities, even though, or maybe because their work is often central to the survival of those movements and communities. The erasure of activists who often do the most exhausting, frustrating, less recognized work in movements and are expected to do this work because they still have to prove themselves is really down and trustworthy, is challenged by queer of color critique. To quote um, Grace Hong and Rod Ferguson, the mobilization of difference by women of color feminism and queer of color critique is intended not to erase the differentials of power, value, and social death within and among groups as in a multiculturalism model, but to highlight such differentials and to attempt to do the best work of forging a coalitional politics through these differences." End quote. While multiculturalism constructs, constructs and fetishizes difference, women of color feminism and queer of color critique deconstruct neoliberal different but equal discourses that justify and maintain capitalist exploitation by not merely using but producing difference as a means to hide connections between, for example, the privatization of the permanent war in the global south and the militarization of civil society in the global north, resulting in the mass incarceration of people of color globally as normalized and profitable forms of population management. This approach allows to highlight the differentials of power produced by a European discourse of belonging that tends to pit sexual against racial minorities, thus both denying and exploiting the intersections between the two categories. 
Queerness becomes tolerable if it's perceived as being compatible with a neoliberal project that produces new forms of exclusions. And in the current European context, racialized others emerge as the group whose exclusion is necessary for the survival of the larger Western project of inclusive humanism. Oppositional coalition and politics are urgently needed in light of global coalitions between neoliberal nationalist and reactionary forces, but they need to be coalitional politics that see the struggle for queer rights as part of the larger movement for equality and liberation, a necessary part that cannot be excluded or postponed or ignored, which is a daunting task, but I believe that queer of color critique is a framework and the querying of ethnicity as a counter strategy allows us to build and sustain coalitional politics that are both attentive to the intersecting structures of power that we all are fighting and to the different positions from which we do so, offering some preliminary tools for the theorizing of positionality, legibility, and identity beyond Eurocentric universalism and ethnic essentialism. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you so much, Fatima, for those amazing um, sets of reflections. I see we have um, one question in the Q&A um, uh, chat thing um, that we can turn to. Um, and I also have a few questions um, to, to pose back to the speakers. Um, but if, if any of you would like to respond to something that's come up um, in the talk, uh, in one another's talks, we can also um, begin there. I don't know if something sprung up to, to any of you as you were hearing your co-panelists speak. Um, otherwise I can ask a question. I'm just, okay, I'll start with one question that I have just thinking off of Fatima's um, um, call for coalitional politics. Um, I was thinking about that in relationship, um, Abira, to the work that you were doing at the end of your paper, which was thinking about the interdependent vulnerabilities as a starting place um, through which we could resist a nationalist um, uh, structures of violence and nationalist forms of antagonism that are specifically being mobilized through uh, an allegedly queer politic toward antagonizing uh, Muslim populations towards producing the sort of other of the UK and the other of Europe. And I just wondered if you two might think together about that or if others would want to think through these forms of the, the you know, Alyosha also spoke to the importance of thinking about who you're working with, right? A different kind of coalition, perhaps, um, than the ones that the two, or certainly than the ones that the two of you are, are trying to articulate and think with. Um, so maybe we could think about this question of um, interdependency of, around vulnerability, coalitional politics, allegiances, and maybe Richard, if you have something that's come through um, from your own research around the ways that the um, communities that you're researching also think through various forms of coalition um, or allegiance that helps them articulate a sort of diasporic queerness that might be useful. So maybe we go back to, to Abira just to hear your thoughts around that thinking through. Yeah, um, I can start off by, I guess, sharing what I've been thinking about recently in relation to my PhD project, which is basically kind of um, attempting to think about coalition in relation to the in relation to queer Muslim subject formation without deifying a past queer queer slash anti-racist politics that you know achieved some form of like perfection of coalition um, and thinking about um, basically how in my research I found that kind of the coalition build the queer coalition building the anti-racist coalition building is not necessarily happening under 
the category of queer Muslim or isn't necessarily happening um, by charities that claim, for example, to represent queer Muslims, et cetera. And I think like there are two ways of, ma of uh, making sense of that. And one is kind of the new in the British landscape, the kind of neoliberal like degradation of identity, of organizing around identity politics. So that um, kind of the Thatcherite uh, degradation of the welfare system has led kind of these like historic organizing like POC, queer POC organizations to become service providers rather than kind of radical, um, yeah, radical instigators, right? Um, so they've kind of transformed this charity model, um, but also um, how I think that also creates a form of opportunity in that it kind of uh, broadens our idea of like what, um, what can happen with identity politics. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I, I think that in the contemporary landscape, uh, the the use of identity politics is in that coalition building rather than in that kind of neoliberal frame of these are the queer Muslim concerns, for example. Alicia, Fatima, Richard, you want to come in on that question of the coalition and how you see it working in or against the work that you're trying to do? Um, so today I spoke about the Russians, but I also sort of do research on, on Poland. And, and I think this, um, the, the Poles, uh, the Polish LGBT rights community is uh, perhaps uh, sort of better, uh, a better example. Um, initially, they would uh, establish sort of events that were specifically related to uh, sort of sexual and gender minorities. Uh, but then they were sort of attacked and criticized uh, for sort of asking for special rights for only thinking about themselves. Um, and so the, there was a shift towards, uh, away from sort of LGBT marches to uh, march for equality. Um, and then the, they, they sort of brought in a much sort of broader coalition of uh, sort of groups and individuals who were sort of marginalized uh, and was marginalized by the state. Uh, so including uh, sort of women, uh, sort of ethnic minorities, uh, disabled individuals. Um, and this uh, sort of proved to be a, a sort of a more successful strategy, um, not necessarily in the sense of of gaining more rights or bringing about change, uh, but it certainly um, sort of silenced uh, a lot of the criticism that they were receiving. Um, and um, it, it was, uh, and it was just a sort of a way to, to sort of support each other in, in sort of individual struggles and then sort of highlight the fact that uh, the fact that they were sort of divined in opposition to the, uh, the sort of the, the, the heteronormative able-bodied um, cisgendered norm uh, was a, a sort of a way to, 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 to sort of shine a light on uh, this construction of Polishness. Um, and again, they were sort of constructed as being anti-Polish, un-Polish, um, sort of anti-Catholic. Um, and so they would seek to uh, sort of frame themselves as actually as we are sort of, we are as Polish as everybody else. So they would sort of in, sort of use sort of national symbols in their um, sort of organizations, um, in their sort of pride marches. They would refer to sort of one of the equality marches, gave it a theme of sort of love thy neighbor to sort of draw on uh, the sort of the sort of the Catholic rhetoric. Um, so yes, yeah, so there was various sort of strategies of sort of coalition building, um, sort of not only within the country, but uh, also sort of long distance. Uh, again, the benefit of various sort of diaspora communities communities um, sort of working 
uh, sort of across borders um, in order to uh, sort of challenge some of the, the the sort of the control of the 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 way that they are sort of represented in in local media. Makes me think a lot about um, Alyosha, your work on migratism and the, the ways that certain forms of nationalist production um, are tied to sort of trying an attempt to uh, push back against a, raci- a certain kind of racialized or migrantized positioning of certain communities as other to the nation, and that those always happen through sexual and gendered formations, that there's something about the sort of return to the nation, and even for and, and specifically with diasporic communities that, that, that functions in these quite ambivalent ways. I know that's been part of the work that you've done in the past. Yeah, I think for, for me, it's like really central to think um, beyond the nation and to think um, community building um, as anti-nationalist, really. And so I'm saying this, as you say, Jacob, from a migrant perspective, and I think I'm I'm very much influenced by the early work of Jasper Poir, um, who says there that crossing borders does not necessarily mean that you want to deconstruct borders. That could also mean that you want to reinforce borders. And also by um, Fatima's work um, in European Others, in which um, the... Uh, it would, in which ethnicity gets mobilized um, as a, a concept that um, opposes nationalist identities. And I think that's really important. And I think that's also important looking at right-wing times as I try to bring in, um, right, because the nation state, of course, gets um, re-established in many ways, in different contexts, in different ways, but they're also supranational to use a whole term, Stuart Hall term, ways in which the nation state um, gets um, reinforced in um, certain forms of politics. And I think it's very important, like in homo nationalism, to uh, to oppose uh, the nationalism, um, but also in femo nationalism, to use that term, to oppose the nationalism that some feminisms um, uh, use. And I think there are two different... Um, realities for me for me here right there's one reality that's the social media reality in which we see all these kind of things going on on um, uh, clashes um, uh, between uh, different groups for example but then we see also the the kind of community care really um, that um, uh, we we have and that I think I rely on very much right in which um, people come together and they try to build uh, intersectional politics for radical social transformation that goes across identity but that is really based very much on the question is like, how can we have politics that doesn't throw others under the bus, right? And that definitely is something that can't be, that's not easy, right? Because you cannot, it's not easy to determine how how you do do that and how you overcome bias and so on. But it's like an ongoing work. And I think that is what's really giving me hope in this moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Fatima, do you want to just draw on, on that? And then we have two questions in the, in the Q&A that I can turn to. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I very much agree with that. Um, and I do think in, in some ways, of course, the last um, year or, or so has um, emphasized global connections. But on the other hand, I also think that it brought into focus the importance of localized work the work of local mutual, mutual aid communities in response to, to state failure, uh, certainly where I am in the US, but I think that's also very much true for Europe. Um, at the same time, I, I do think that 
the the current pushback that we see both in nationalism but also in these related forms, be it um, this whole discourse around Islamo-Gauchism in, in, in France or coming back to what you said in the very, be, very beginning, Jacob, in, in the German context, very explicitly um, solidarity for Palestine, um, Bilefight as a strategy to push, begin, push back against a kind of solidarity across racialized communities that I do think has become a lot more visible in the last 10 years or so. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I can, I can also totally agree with what Alyosha said. The, the question of solidarity is one that is um, exhausting, that, you know, is a constant, constant process. But even though I, I do feel pretty exhausted, I'm, I'm also hopeful because I do think that there are um, that there are signs of the uh, of the persistence um, of this process, and I also agree um, with with Abira that this this attempt to kind of look back to a glorified past of of international solidarity is not very helpful. But at the same time, I'm also very invested in um, making accessible archives of the of the struggles that have taken place and that still often sustain us in ways that we're not even aware of. Mm. Absolutely. It just makes me think of I'm sort of connecting some of those that um, at this very same moment that you have people, as Eliosha was saying, starting a, a sort of made up university for free speech, right, under this claim that they're being persecuted out of um, thinking, right, um, and persecuted out of speaking, um, the, those people as well as their allies are also um, um, uh, working to criminalize protest, Right, and specifically calling for the protesters who are at LSE speaking in solidarity with Palestine, uh, a solidarity that's also been articulated as a solidarity with Black Lives Matter movement, with a transnational thinking through various forms of injustice and occupation. Right, but that the protest itself seen as the scene of violence, right, um, rather than the occupation itself. And so then the, there's, a, there's a, a, a hypocritical moment of being told that one in power cannot speak, right, is being silenced while being platformed at the same time as these radical movements um, are the ones that are, that are being criminalized for their acts of speech um, and having to think across these different um, moments. Um, there's two questions in... Um, now there's three, three questions in the Q&A. Um, so I'll, I'll read them out and then we can um, try to take them uh, as we go. So we have one from Gabriel Brew, who's a MSc gender sexuality student here at LSE. Um, and this is for Professor Richard Mole. Fascinating talk. Um, uh, they're moving around. Fascinating talk. Thank you. Uh, was there among the participants a sense of longing for a progressive Russia they could eventually return to, right? So again, thinking around this question of the fantasy, perhaps, of a past or the fantasy of a nation. Um, there's a question from uh, Lola Olafemi, Sarah Leso, and Miriam Gauntlet. Following Fatima, we wondered if the panelists had any thoughts on how we as organizers and thinkers can anticipate and prepare for the destruction of Britain and Europe and what possibilities await for queers so the nation state withers away. Quite a big, uh, amazing question to think through. Um, 
And then I'll read um, Ikenna's question and, and then we can come back. I see there's more that are coming up now. Um, Ikenna uh, from LSE MSC Anthropology, um, words like coalition politics and solidarity were spoken about as keywords connected to a queering the way forward against European nationalistic violence. It's interesting to hear about Black Lives Matter protests in Romania prompting conversations around violence against Roma as well as LGBTQ folks. How can transnational coalitions and solidarity be enacted in a way that effectively responds to the multiple violences being done by nations without diluting, especially while responding to the urgency of violence facing different populations. 